Hello, podcast fans, and welcome back to another brand new episode, a marvellous episode, you might say, of the Silver Screen Podcast. I am your regular host, Mike, uh, and I am here um, being all hooked on a feeling, shall we say, uh, along with my usual co-host today, coming to us as DK Raccoon. (laughs) Yeah, but in a strange twist of fate, I was just about to say, you can't see me, I'm just moving that slow that I'm practically invisible. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Uh, You can't see our thumbnails all that clearly at the moment, but weirdly enough, yes, I have the uh, avatar of Star-Lord and DK, who is usually Star-Lord, is Rocket. Don't ask. We just just went with it. (laughs) Exactly. And uh, we are joined by our uh, regular, well, our regular guest when it comes to all things Marvel and uh, a frequent uh, guest on our shows, Toby. Welcome back, Toby. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm back again. And I don't have an icon on my profile because nobody told me. <laughs> well, we don't want to make it we don't want to make it complex because as soon as we try to do things like that, tech issues get in the way and then it takes three hours to even start recording. So oh well. <laughs> so yeah, if you hadn't guessed by our not so subtle hints, uh me and the guys and my little mascot that you can see on screen if you're on YouTube, uh little mini Star Lord are here to review. Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking all things, all about these supervisors of the solar system. Oh, no, that's the cheap own brand knockoff version. <sighs> Sorry. We catch you, they're stunt doubles. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Always appreciate a good Space Wolves reference. Uh, yeah, apologies. I just wanted to get that joke in there because we did find a few funny Guardians memes. And uh, maybe I'll share a couple more randomly during uh, the editing process. So keep an eye out for that if you're on our YouTube. There's a reason to go and subscribe if ever there was one. But uh, yeah, today, as I said, we're talking Guardians of the Galaxy. Just in time for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, the uh, final chapter as it's being built for these particular characters, which is coming out yesterday, as you're listening to this. Uh, because, yeah, Marvel decided to release a film on a Wednesday when it's a big film. So if you've already seen Volume 3, no spoilers, please. Uh, but yeah, hopefully you'll still get something out of uh, going back to, to where this all began. Uh, and seeing what we think of this and, uh, you know, refreshing your memory of Guardians of the Galaxy, which I will say I appreciated doing because uh, I just watched this last night, as everybody knows, on our Discord in particular, and I was getting a lot out of it, being able to watch it with this analytical, kind of more critical eye, and, uh, yeah, enjoyed myself, spoiler alert. So, yeah, um, and you were saying, DK, you're kind of relying more on memory today. <laughs> yeah, so probably not much input from me because my memory is for shit, as anybody who listens regularly will know. Absolutely. I was and getting totally a lot out of it because I forgot most of things that happened. I was like, this happened? What? <laughs> <laughs> this was in the movie. I did and, not uh, remember. And I allude to it in my uh, review or in my conclusion, I think, but I've seen this film so many times I could have just acted it out. I didn't need to watch it, but I was. it was nice to do it because I was actually noticing little things and background moments that... You don't until you've watched a film like 10 plus times, which I have with this that, movie. That is kind of why I, at the end of the day, I just thought it'd be fine. I've seen it that many times. 
oh yeah, I could have gotten away with not watching it, but I was like, I'll, I'll do it, I'll watch it and to look for things. And like I said, I think hopefully I've got some bits and pieces to contribute. But if you are a regular viewer slash listener, you do know uh, we break this down into sections and we always start with a behind the scenes section. And that's usually the purview of our little furry hamster friend over there. What cheesy music do you have for me this week, Mike? Do you know, I didn't even think, so I haven't got it queued up. So oh. um, let me just scroll, scroll, scroll till I can find it. Uh, I keep forgetting we're going to do <laughs> background music every now and then. Let's see. There's something called dance pop, and that sounds significantly, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, let's try that. So let's give that a shot. Uh, it's loading. Yeah, that seems Guardians-ish. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Now, I mean, what can you say about this that isn't already known? It's a behind-the-scenes dream for the subject matter, but a nightmare for attempting to scrape together things that your average listener might not already be aware of. Chances are everything that I mentioned is common knowledge, but for those fans out there who aren't as obsessed with these movies as some of us, I mean, you never know. Something may be new to uh, to impress slash discuss with your co co-workers with tomorrow. Now, Gunn originally didn't want Chris Pratt for the role, didn't even want to see him read for the role, thinking of him only as the chubby guy from Parks and Rec. He was only convinced at the end of the auditions, some say by his assistant, some say the casting director, to let Pratt try. After around 30 seconds, Gunn felt that Pratt was perfect for the role. In fact, he was so sure that he was allegedly prepared to offer him the role, even if he didn't get in shape on time, joking that he would be willing to CGI a six-pack for Pratt. He was that impressed. <laughs> Now, according to Vin Diesel, he recorded the line, I am Groot, over a thousand times, and allegedly recorded his lines while wearing the stilts he used for the performance. He loved playing the character so much, he would attend the premieres on said stilts, wearing a t-shirt with I am Groot emblazoned upon it. And I get the feeling that phrase is going to come up quite a, quite a few times today. Now, Bradley Cooper has stated he was paid more for this movie than he was for both Silver Linings Playbook and The Hangover combined. And sticking on the subject of actors, many of Gunn's frequent collaborators can be found making subtle cameos in the movie. Michael Rooker, Nathan, well, I mean, you know, Michael Rooker, not so subtle. Nathan Fillion, uh, Rob Zombie, Lloyd Kaufman, and Greg Henry, all of which worked with Gunn on Slither and Super prior to Guardians. Shall we, shall we tell people where they can find them? <laughs> yeah, all right. Nathan Fillion is the blue nostril alien that Groot sticks his tendrils up. Well, I should rephrase that. He's the blue alien that Groot sticks his tendrils up his nostrils. It's it's not a a, par a, a porn parody. Don't worry about it. Uh, Rob Zombie is the uh, voice of a Ravager, I believe. Uh, I didn't know that one, but okay. Yeah, and Lloyd Kaufman is a kiln inmate that shouts murderer at Gamora, I believe. Ah, and if, and yes, if you I can't did see find, that guy here. Yeah, and if you can't <laughs> find Greg Henry, then I wouldn't bother. Yeah, Greg right. Henry and Michael Rooker are pretty easy to find. Yeah. <laughs> Henry, who plays Peter's grandfather, was supposed to have a scene at the end of the movie. Gunn revealed that the film originally closed with Quill's grandfather looking up at the stars after seeing a photograph of a young Meredith and Peter. Gunn stated, he's got this photograph of Meredith and Peter as a little boy, and he looks up at the stars, and we go up to the stars, and it was really sweet. It means that he must have seen Quill getting abducted at the end of that day and is still waiting for him to return. But it was so freaking sad, we just took it out. <laughs> However, one cameo that didn't pan out was old Shellhead. 
at the time of shooting in the comic books, Iron Man had just become the latest member of the Guardians team. There was a plan to feature a small appearance by RDJ as a reference to this. Unfortunately, it was nixed when Downey Jr. stated that his contract had run its course and he may not return. Downey, of course, obviously later signed on for a contract to bring him back for Infinity War and Endgame. The Jackson Pollock line was ad-libbed by Pratt after a discussion with Gunn. Gunn was unsure that the producers would allow it to be kept in due to its risque nature. However, while Gunn removed scenes from the film in order to allow it to remain, Pratt convinced Feige on his own to let it stay. It ended up getting the biggest laugh of the movie in screenings. And I've, I, I think I've mentioned this to you, Mike, before. I do like the euphemism one user put on IMDb regarding this in an attempt to remain pure and virtuous. And I quote, Black lights can illuminate certain biological substances. This <laughs> indicates that in the past, serious carnage had taken place aboard, involving victims of varying colours. <laughs> I got nothing. I got nothing. I mean, if you're if you're wearing blinkers to that extent, good luck to you. Best of luck. And on the subject of wordplay, another little thing that I think you might appreciate, Mike, if if you're not already aware, probably are, but oh well. When the movie cuts to Ronan's ship, the Darkaster, it features a line of coordinates underneath. Yeah. You put those numbers into a some translation software that translates numbers to letters. It comes out as this is Mom's cancer. Wow, okay. I, I did not know that, but that's pretty yeah. wild. Okay. Now, Gunn's obsession with giving uh, a great comic book adaptation has naturally led to Volume 1, 2, and no doubt 3. You know, people who've seen it will know. Uh, leading, being packed to the veritable gift for eagle-eyed comic book fans. From cameo appearances of the Celestial Ace on the Searcher to the planet named after the first Kree leader to the character of Barit, there's a multitude in there. Obviously, the Collector's Emporium contains a great many of these. Not only is it filled with various trinkets from across the books, as well as guns on little in-jokes, it also introduces the M to the MCU the characters of Howard and Cosmo. But not only that, it oh, also features... Yes. Yeah, it also... It's I mean, it's still not the George Lucas one, but, you know, beggars can't be choose. The, uh, the collection also features a sovereign cocoon, which had many speculating for some time that Adam Warlock would uh, emerge from, as well as specimens of alien races such as the Chitari, the Dark Elves, Frost Giants, Zeronian, Hercturian. In fact, Stan Lee, who eventually went on to play the Zandarian Ladies' Man, under observation by Rock Lieber, <laughs> at the yeah. beginning of the movie, was due a cameo in Tivan's collection. Being kept in one of the cabinets, he would give Groot the middle finger. Alas, Disney execs weren't happy with this and had Gunn change the cameo to the one we all saw on screen. But Star-Lord gives the middle finger in the movie anyway. I know, I know. <laughs> they, maybe they just didn't what? think it was appropriate for Stan. I don't know, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, and then, you know, Ryan Reynolds came out and said, yeah, watch this. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of Easter eggs, Gunn claims, and has done for years, that there is one Easter egg in the movie which still hasn't been figured out, and at one point offered up to $100,000 to the first person that nailed it. Now, in recent years, internet sleuths, Mastertainment, and New Rock Stars have both respectively put forward the theory that, like the Dark Aster coordinates, this Easter egg has something to do with Peter's mother, Meredith. Now, on both occasions, Gunnar stated they're partially correct, but the full thing has, to the time of this recording, never been successfully guessed or revealed mm. by Gunn. 
And finally, during the closing credits, the human animal line reads, no raccoons or tree creatures were harmed during the making of this film. <laughs> I do remember seeing that, yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there's lots to unpack and an awful lot in, as you said, especially for uh, eagle-eyed nerds like ourselves, where I think every uh, every you know five or ten minutes or so, I was just going like, oh, that thing, that thing, that thing. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is a... Uh, uh, just a treat, I think, for comic book fans this morning. Yeah, I, I, I will. I think uh, the sequel's even more so. But yeah, I absolutely. Uh, it, it really is. It's such a treat, and uh, yeah, <laughs> we we were all Captain America shouting. I understood that reference for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I understood that reference. Uh, right. Well, uh, we may as well jump straight in then with the rest of our review, if that's okay with you guys. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know that we just, uh, if you're a regular listener, you know anyway that we do this kind of just by category. So it's not necessarily linear with the movie. Uh, we break the categories down like acting, directing, uh, visual effects, music and sound, uh, writing and plot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, because I am sick of being seeming like I'm the one doing all the talking and kind of, uh, you know, guiding the conversation a little bit too forcefully. I thought for a change, I'd throw it over to you guys today and we'll start with our guest and say, Toby, what would you like to talk about first? Which category do you think is uh, is worth starting on? Yeah, dump it on me. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do the work. Um, let's talk about acting. Acting. Well, that's normally acting. what we do anyway. So that's, uh, oh. yeah, that's <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. So yeah, what did you what did you uh, want to bring up first of all about the acting? There's lots to obviously see, awful lot of people in this movie. So yeah, I was well because you don't really notice this. I think when you watch it the first time, how good Zoe Zalana is as Gamora because mm -hmm. of all the green that this distracts. I think in the first viewing, but now I could watch it more clearly, and she is so good. There's yeah. so many little things that are just happening that I'm just go oh, amazing. Yeah. I, I don't have a many notes on Zoe Saldana, but uh, Saldana, I should say, but I will jump in uh, there to say that I found her very hard to like at first, but I think that's the point because you're never sure of her yeah. allegiance and she's kind of, uh, you know, antagonistic towards them. But one moment that I just didn't fully register until this viewing that I absolutely love is when um, you know, it's the very end of the movie and she's had the conversation earlier with Quill about I don't dance and everything. And he puts on uh, the second awesome mix and she just gives the single most subtle little dance move in his direction and smiles. And I was like, that is so awesome. I love, oh, that. I love that. You didn't notice that before. I don't know if I registered it. I was just like, oh, she's smiling. And then this time around, I was like, she's actually doing a little dance. I get it now. That's so cool. Um, I'm sometimes a bit slow, or if I'm watching in poor quality, I don't pick up on these things. But yeah, I, it does kind of annoy me that, spoiler alert, if you're not caught up with the MCU, those kind of really sweet moments of character growth are just gone now, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's kind of sucky that we we have to now have a Gamora that's from before this movie. So every, yeah. bit, of, you know, every bit of character depth is just killed. But we'll see what volume three brings, I guess. And uh, yeah. apologies, Toby, you were, you were saying, sorry. And I think I was especially amazed at in the prison sequence because this is, I think, the moment where she's the most caught between stuff, mm. uh, the most troubled, I think, in that moment. And um, she's really good. Yeah. And I think yeah. That's, sure. that's the best moment, best moments 
I think. Probably. Yeah, I'm assuming there's tons of lines we could get into, but uh, it just popped into my head because you said that. I'm assuming you really like the exasperated line of, I'm going to die surrounded by the biggest idiots in the universe. Yeah. <laughs> From Gamora. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah. Uh, DK, did you have any thoughts on Zoe? Uh, I've been in love with Zoe Saldana since the terminal. And yeah, this this didn't discourage me. I think she's absolutely amazing in this, and I love the little touches. Uh, you know, like you said about her her dancing. I think she's got a great chemistry. In fact, I think they've all got a great chemistry when it comes to this movie. I don't think there's one, you know, dud of a player. Uh, yeah. I know I'm switching switching uh, horses, you know, mid mid race. But uh, I, I want to bring up Dave Batista. This was this was the first time I'd seen him acting anything, and you know, you've got that stereotype of old wrestlers turning mm. into acting from the heady days of, uh, you know, oh god, that Hulk Hogan Hulk babysitting Hogan? movie. Yeah. Oh, um, what was that called? Dang, I was yeah. I was ready to say Suburban Commando. It's something nanny. But it's not yeah. Mr. Nanny, I don't think. But yeah, I know. Yeah. You um, so, you know, Dwayne Johnson aside, that's my overriding impression. Whenever a wrestler says, oh, they're into acting and stuff like that. But Dave Batista in this just absolutely blew me away. Uh, I was never a big fan of Drax in the comic books. He was a bit, you know, he was kind of a bit too tough guy. And I just, I don't go in for that kind of stuff. So to see him imbued with humor like Batista did, I just, it was a revelation. I love that character in this movie. Love it. I was I wrong, think... by the way. It is. It is Mr. Nanny. Sorry. Yeah. I think he's. I mean, to be honest, I've not seen a lot of the cast in this. I never watched Parks and Rec, so I didn't have much of an impression oh, of Chris Pratt. And uh, yeah, they all made a really good impression on me. I. I. I don't think you know, with, without seeming generalizing too early, I don't think there's a dud member of this cast. Talking about. Dave Bautista. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Yeah, I yeah, want to yeah. say something about. Um, as already said, he's amazing in this role. Blah blah blah. We covered this, but I just love because we were talking about wrestlers that are gone into acting. How seriously he, he takes acting, like mm. not only in this movie, but you know, in other movies and other stuff. He gives a lot of interviews and talks about different stuff he wants to act in, not always going for the, I'd say, wrestling actor typecast. Uh, but also want to do other stuff and go in other do, lanes. Yeah, I do like that he's branching out. Uh, I mean, I, th I thought he was the only kind of decent thing in Knock at the Cabin. I was going to say the same thing, <laughs> actually. Yeah. No, uh, with regards to Batista, that was the note I had. I just said I think he's a kind of a revelation. And like you kind of were hinting at, DK, I think he's in the conversation for best wrestler turned actor. Uh, probably, as you said, alongside Dwayne Johnson, but We'll see how many more cinematic universes he destroys before we. I, I, I honestly do. I honestly do think Dwayne Johnson has kind of typecast himself into certain mm, roles, yeah. and yeah, I, I can't say for sure because it's just you know alleged what he has stipulated in his contract. Mm -hmm. But uh, when it comes to Batista, Batista seems to be seeking out roles that don't fit the wrestler mold, and I, and I do yeah. love that about him. Yeah, exactly. I'm exactly sure. That. I'm sure you both know that there's the old adage that says dying is easy, comedy is hard. 
Um, and I think that, in a way, that means that Batista has the hardest job in the film because he gets the bulk of the comedy. And having comedy timing and selling it is way harder than it looks, uh, which isn't to say that drama and stuff isn't hard. But yeah, to come basically as your first big acting gig and have to sell really broad comedy and do it is just so incredible. Yeah. Uh, I am aware that there is criticism from some quarters that the character is nothing like the comic book version. He's, no, he's not really the destroyer. Um, but having read a couple of Guardians comics, that version of the character is so dour. And yeah. So <laughs> so it's just, just a complete turn off for me that character, and I was dre I was dreading seeing that character on screen. So he imbued it with a life that I honestly didn't think possible. Yeah, absolutely. going back to the acting, um, not only he has to do a lot of the comedy, he is the butt of the joke, which I think is even harder to do. If you don't want just you know insulting other people jokingly, I think that's a little easier acting wise than being the butt of the joke always. Yeah. yeah. And the, was, and the lines a, that he received, it would have been so easy for him to, you know, put on a, a knowing game face and things like that. But he plays it so straight. He sells it perfectly. Yeah, that's what I mean. The timing and the pitching. And this is a very random note. I won't move fully onto this now. But related to that, I do think in terms of the writing, it's kind of nice that even as kind of you said, Toby, there are people that are butts of the joke. They get their moment of reversing that and coming out triumphant. So I think it's because of that that it's so glorious when Drax kills Korath the Pursuer and literally just says, throat to the neck means kill, metaphor. <laughs> and you just get Starlord going, yeah, kind of. <laughs> like, that wouldn't have worked if it hadn't been kind of a silly thing that we were laughing at the whole movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, one performance I didn't like that I thought just was too weird and what are they doing was, uh, was the collector Benicio Del Toro. I just don't know. He just he seems to think he's Nicolas Cage in one of his more outrageous performances, and he's not. Basically. I kind of love that. I think it. I think it fits in. If it, if it was in any other Marvel movie, and yeah, I know he had the post scene in Dark World, but if it were any other Marvel movie, it wouldn't sell it. But because it's amongst this wacky collection of characters, I think he. I think it works fine. I wish I could get away with introducing myself in that in that manner day to day. I just there's moments and it's it's things that I think were probably in the script so much as not necessarily acting choices, but and it's going to be very hard to describe non visually. There's that moment when he's talking about the orb and he does this weird thing where he like shakes both hands and does this weird move and then Rocket completely mocks him and does the same thing. And I'm I like, love that, that shit. That I is love far that. too broad. It had a real danger for me of slipping into. No, not, let's not get into full on parody. I mean, there's really funny stuff, but as we're keeping the reality, the verisimilitude of the movie. And he is the one character that I think is at real risk of like, oh, come on, be careful here. You know? So, uh, yeah, anyway. But obviously, you don't agree with me, DK. No, I, I, I honestly, I, I, like, as I said, I don't think there's a single. I think the, the one that obviously plays it the most straight is is Lee Pace and I'm wondering how much of a mm. difficult job that must have been when you look at how much fun everyone else is having I was just going to say I, did, I didn't want to do a, a, a disservice to Zoe Saljana uh, because you know she's just attractive and I think you know she's just eye candy and that's it by this point she's been in several franchises mm. and I think she does an absolutely amazing job in me, as you say at the start, you're not particularly enamored with her, and she does an amazing job of giving a little character arc. Obviously, she gets more of one in the second one of giving that little character arc. So eventually, you come around to care about Gamora, and the fact that 
I don't know if it's down to the writing. I, I don't want to get into a tit for tat with other franchises, but I think mm -hmm. she stands out in Guardians. I think it plays to her strengths more than it does in, say, Avatar or Star Trek. I think um, she certainly gets in this movie the biggest character growth. It's the biggest feeling, change of feeling from start to end, at least until we get into the, the whole movies overall. And then you have Nebula's change from volume one to where we are in volume three, which is just night and day, basically, you yeah. know? Um, and it's probably a, a sort of macrocosm of the same kind of idea, just really well written. But that's, you know, that's also including two Avengers movies and I guess briefly a Thor movie, but we could probably just discount that. So yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, but yeah, so Toby, what did you want to bring up next for the acting then? Like there's a lot of people to get to touch on you. Yeah, going going back to the collector, I do have one thing to say. I think it works in this limited role that he has. Mm. I think if, if it was a bigger role, I'd agree that it wouldn't work. But I feel like in the li yeah. this limited time that he is present, I think it works well enough. Not amazing, but good enough. That's probably fair, yeah. yeah fair enough. Um, awesome. So, well, we haven't talked about the main, arguably, character here, Chris Pratt as Star-Lord. Uh, so what did you, Toby, think of uh, of our Peter Quill? <laughs> to be honest, I don't have a lot of specific notes to that. Mm. I mean, That's... he's great, but I don't have, like, one thing I can point out and go, like, I want to talk about that, to be honest. Okay, really... but you thought he was you thought he was fine to say the very least in, in the roles. I mean he was he was great, but yeah, there isn't like one thing that I can point out to that I notice actively. That's fair enough. Well, before I, I sort of you know say what I have little a little few notes wise, uh DK, you're the big Star Lord fan. So what did you think of uh, of Chris Pratt as your hero? <laughs> uh I think he did an admiral job, as I said. I I wasn't really conscious of who Chris Pratt was prior to this movie. Think he did a, a bang up job. I'm I'm glad that uh, he ended up with the role. I mean, looking at some of the other people that that it was offered to, apparently it was offered to Matthew McConaughey at first, which to me <laughs> just wouldn't have worked. And apparently, Zachary Levi was in the running at one point. And again, oh no, well, I, don't, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it would have been that different. I mean, he just plays Shazam in much the same way, so. He does, but I think you know, and and I'm and sometimes I'm loath to admit this because you know politics outside. He's he's mm. not my favourite person, but I don't think anybody could have done it as well as Chris Pratt. I think I I just love how he portrays the character. I will. Yeah. The caveat is I will put I do prefer the Star Lord from uh, the uh, video game, but right. as far as movie goes, as far as movies go. I think uh, Chris Pratt's good, and um, you know, I guess his heart's in his right place, in, in the right place. I mean, apparently, he stole the Star Lord costume from the set so he could visit sick kids in hospital as Star Lord. Mm. So, I mean, yeah. anybody that does that, they're, they're all right in my book. And again, politics aside, he seems like a decent person. I think I've only ever seen him in this Passengers and the Lego Movie, and you, you know, it's not really a broad spectrum of of things. To see him in, but considering this was his first major role, especially one that I'd seen him in, well, and he was in he Zero Dark Thirty and stuff like that. But I would uh, say God, I would say Parks and Rec was a pretty big role, just because you didn't watch it. But okay. nothing exists outside of my limited scope. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I thought I thought it was really good, 
really good. As as oh. and as, as you say, Star Lord is is my guy. So to see him portrayed on screen and to see him portrayed so well, um, yeah. I think I can just completely disregard Chris Pratt and view him as Star Lord and view the performance outside of anything else um, because I kind of have to. Uh, and I think if you're looking at his performance here, I think it's it's really charming, even yeah. when he's supposed to be a douchebag. Which again is kind of hard to pull off because when you have moments like telling Barit, "Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot you were there," that shouldn't work. You should be like, "What a jerk this guy is!" And yet, yeah, like I said, he kind of still has this air of, "Oh, you scamp." <laughs> this, this is it. I mean, let's let's be honest. None of them are, you know, pure characters. They're all yeah. assholes, basically. Yeah. But you just can't yeah. help but love them. I mean, even if you look at Michael Rooker as Yondu. You shouldn't like this guy. He's just a git for a lot of the movie. But you can't be honest. Him. I, I didn't really like him in the first movie. It took till Guardians two to really get the whole what they were going for with Yondu. But now yeah. that I have that context and I go back to one, I can certainly see that they're seeding things and setting them up there. Yeah. Um, if you know what I mean, there's moments where I was just kind of like, oh, I get it now. Bully, 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 bully. Yeah. <laughs> but even in the moment where he's like he's oh I'm sorry I've got to set an example because I'm the captain for everyone and he's holding the arrow to his neck I, I get the sense that there's a kind of like he knows Peter's going to say something to get himself out with this and he's waiting for it he was never going to really go through with it kind of thing you know um, so yeah there's moments there where I have to yeah. I have to think it's it's the Yondu will come to know but yeah as I say with it, when it comes to Chris Pratt's dialogue though I think you feel for him and you root for him and that's just as well because he has all of the emotional weight and gut punches of the movie. But as, if he if he wasn't as good, I don't think that dance off at the end would be anywhere he, near. He wouldn't be able to pull it off. A lesser actor, <laughs> and, and honestly, I don't think Levi would have been able to pull it off. I just want to say quickly then as well, uh, and then I'll jump back to you guys. Bradley Cooper as Rocket just constantly surprises me because you could tell me with if I didn't know that it was Bradley Cooper, and even when you tell me, I'm like. Is it? Because I do not hear that guy in this voice at all. And I'm just so like impressed. Like he is the absolute emotional heart of the film. And it doesn't sound like a Bradley Cooper performance at all. And I've, I've seen Bradley Cooper in things. It's not like I don't know what he sounds like. I've seen Silver Linings Playbook and Hangover and all that. And I'm like, I don't know where this grumpy, I guess, pseudo Brooklyn-y type voice comes from, but it really bloody works, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I think he's... Really good. Same for Vin Diesel. Yeah. I mean, I'm not seeing. You know what? Can you say about Vin Diesel? <laughs> what can you say about Vin Diesel yeah. that I hasn't mean, already been said? <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't. Again, I, I, I not. I wasn't a big fan of the Fast and the Furious movies when I saw this. I'd Never seen, seen one. one. I'd seen a couple of the Riddick movies. He felt like a very one-note actor. You know, not to do a disservice to him, but. Yeah, impressed me, and I know. Yeah, I know you only had one line, but the <laughs> amount the amount he had to convey with one line, and uh, you know, give it different emotion. I yeah. yeah. Again, not one member of this cast to me that were a duffer. I think Vin Diesel does what he's expected to very well, but I will say for me, I think that character's impact has very little to do with him. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, I'd put a, a percentage of it on that vocal performance, but like you said, it's three words. There's only so much you can do. And yes, he does give it that bit of range and there are some great moments, but I think for me, the 
you know, whoever does the performance capture on set and the visual effects team and the actors around him who are having to sell that to what I assume is a guy on stilts with a tennis ball stuck to his head or something. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, that this is who I would give those plaudits to as opposed to a dude who sat in a booth, you know, even regardless of how many languages he recorded it in and said, I am Groot hundreds of times. <laughs> you know, again, not to downplay it, it's great that he's, you know, he's good in it and everything, but. Yeah, I don't think he's the reason we love that character at all. I think pretty much anybody could have done it, really. Yeah, I think it's the kind of performance that is very good, but also it's not like a performance where only this person could have done this. It's like yeah. other people could have done it as well, but it's good. It's still good. Absolutely. Doesn't Absolutely. discredit that. Uh, did have anyone else you wanted to talk about, uh, Toby? Do we have anyone left? Oh, watch. there's lots. I've got a few, but I'll well, I'll throw them to you and ask what you guys think. Yeah. First of, oh, first Nebula. of all, yeah. We have Nebula. Yeah. That was literally my next thing. Karen Gillan as Nebula. What did you think Nebula. about that? I I think a lot of stuff about Nebula that is com is coming in the later movies. Mm -hmm. We really see how it takes root in. Yeah, and I really like that. Because I feel like if you just take this movie isolated, I feel like Kangan does not get a lot to play with, a little bit. But I feel like it really starts to shine in the later movies. But she's yeah. still great in the little stuff that she gets, but she's not the focus in this movie. She is. She only gets little parts that are great. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think very similarly. I remember when I first saw this in particular, it was really hard not to just see Amy Pond because this was just after <laughs> Doctor yeah. Who and we're all we're all nerds and Doctor Who fans and we it's even weirder because she played Amy Pond with her actual natural Scottish accent. So it took a lot of adjusting for me to get used to the American accent she's doing in this film. And I do think it's a little bit ropey in this first movie. It gets better. And I would say that about everything, like the overall performance improves with every film. The writing for the character improves and I think she, you know, Karen definitely eases into that role, shall we say, or grows into that role yeah. in really impressive ways. And it's nice that you can see the start of that here, but she's not as strong in this first movie. If I was really nitpicky, um, DK, what did you think? Thoughts about that? Or I was just excited to see Amy Pond on the big screen, if I'm being honest, mate. Who's that? Who's there? You watch it because I am armed and really dangerous and <laughs> we are all big nerds. I think Fair I enough. think the standout moment for her, her in this movie was when she was with Thanos on this floating thing island. And um, it's very clear also in the writing that she was just not the focus in this movie. Yeah. And yeah. can't blame anyone for that. Yeah. It's, it I mean, would have been too much if, if she would have gotten more focus. I think she gets a good amount of role in this movie that builds upon later movies. And yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, you kind of already mentioned him, but I did want to say about Lee Pace, uh, DK. I yeah. used to not be all that impressed with his performance in this movie. Then I saw his performance in the Hobbit movies, and I was like, "Oh, you're really good." Okay, it could have been so much worse in Guardians of the Galaxy. Then, <laughs> but yeah, um, I don't think he's especially impressive. Like you see, he's kind of overshadowed uh, because the film has to set up. Thanos, and you've got Nebula doing a lot of the running around and stuff. So yeah. he's, he's kind of seems much like... a straight guy to everyone else in this movie, yeah. and it's not an enviable position. But I think we, you know, with with what he has to deal with, he's 
I think he's decent. I've always been a he tries, yeah. you know, since pushing daisies, I've been a fan oh, of yes. Lee Pace. So uh that's yeah. a performance, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, he tries at times, but I just don't think he knows he because like you said, he has to be the straight man and be serious. And so when he gets really shouty and angry and gives You call me boy! I will unfurl one thousand years of Cree justice on Zendar and burn it to its core! Thanos, I'm coming for you. Like, that would be good if this movie was playing everything fully straight, but it kind of isn't. But how much of that do you put on the director for not giving you the tone of what you're supposed to be acting out, you know? Um, he, he is yeah. this movie's Ernie Wise, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, he's not the most memorable villain in the MCU either, bless him, but yeah. He's, he's, he's by far not the worst. He's not the least memorable because that one has to go to. Did you guys know Jaiman Honsu's in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Who? <laughs> <laughs> the wizard from Shazam, you know. <laughs> Bless him. He's in this movie. He got a paycheck. <laughs> this is. This sounds awful because I think he's a fantastic actor. But I honestly, remember Christopher Fairbank in this movie more than Honsu. Yeah, there's a lot of, like you said, because there's so many sort of other little roles and stuff, it's kind of hard not to get lost in that shuffle. And the character of Korath, the Pursuer, has no reason to be in this movie other than that one joke. And you just feel like you couldn't have saved him for a better future appearance because yeah. he gets killed off. On some, I mean, I know he does, believe it or not, he and Ronan do reappear in the MCU later and yet make even less memorable appearances that time. To, to be fair, you could level that accusation at a lot of MCU characters. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of names from the books that they just think, oh, let's get this person in. Well, as you said, like the changes they make to well, even Yondu at a start, but then like the likes of Barit and these background yeah. characters, even even Karina, you know, um, yeah. it's like, well, that's just a name you wanted to throw out to make the geeks go. I, oh. I understood that reference. That's the that's the trouble. There are so many good actors in this, and some of them give such small roles, like uh, you know John C. Riley, Glenn Close. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just think they've, they've just done really well casting yeah. wise. I think they've they've it, in my opinion. I mean, yes, you have uh, standout roles in the MCU that you can't imagine anybody better than RDJ to play Iron Man or Chris Evans to play Cap. Yeah. For sure. But yeah. in this movie, every single person, to, in my in my mind, really, is just perfect for the role. Yeah, I I had a very similar note where I just said John C. Riley, Peter Serafinovich, and Jen and Glenn Close are all severely underrated and all bring so much more than you would initially think to the to the role when you're watching it back and you're like, oh yeah, because there's so much going on, you kind of they get lost in the shuffle a bit, but they're all great performances yeah. with really good moments. And in particular, um I have to shout out Laura Haddock as Meredith Quill because yes. I think that's that's central to the film, even though it's such a small role. And, uh, and she is an actress that I did actually know about before Guardians. If you don't know, she's British, and she had a role in a like BBC Three sitcom called How Not to Live Your Life, which is surprisingly funny, and I recommend if you can find it. But I'd never expected to see her in a big screen movie, and to see her completely transform uh, into this character and sell this big emotional moment, I was like, this woman's good. I can't wait to see what roles she gets next. And then she starred in Transformers The Last Night. So oh, we'll move on quickly from that. <laughs> I mean, you know, Greg Henry, he's not yeah. in it much, but yeah, I mean, he's really good. But I do want to go back to Chris Fairbanks. I think mm. he's 
like the everyman actor. He's appeared in so much. I mean, I knew him when he started in uh, Avida's Impact. I was going to say this. <laughs> you know, he's in Star Wars. He's in the MCU. He was in Batman. He was in The Fifth Element. He's just that kind of character actor that crops up every once in a while. And you go, oh, it's him. And then, you know, the action moves on and he's completely forgotten about. And I think he's a very underrated actor. And he's, I mean, he must be knocking on a bit these days because I've read the same pet for quite some time ago. But uh, yeah. Sure. I don't want to believe that. <laughs> mate, mate, tell me about it. Yeah, I, I don't have this note, but I, you've brought it up to my head for some reason. So I wanted to see it now as well. Uh, Sean Gunn in this movie, as I forget the character's name now, but yeah, is really good as the sort of Ravager character that he plays. I feel terrible for not Craglin, that's it. But yeah. yeah, he does a really good job as Craglin, and even in that limited role, I think he's great. But also, you have to remember, he's the on screen uh, rocket raccoon. Okay. Yeah. And I think that is such a good. Uh, motion capture type performance when you think of the little subtle things that that character does and that he had to be there and i've seen the behind the scenes things where he's like on his hands and knees during the circle scene and stuff and it's like he's committing bless him you know to this and, uh, that, that screenshot of you know dave batista stroking his head <laughs> it's just yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. and yet the scene in the movie is so emotional it's just yeah it's incredible um what was I going to say? So, yeah, I only have two more notes about acting. First of all, Josh Brolin as Thanos. This is his first appearance in the role because it was Damon Poitier who played the very brief appearance at the end of Avengers. Um, and I think, yeah, talk about a killer first appearance for Josh Brolin in this movie as Thanos, whether it be, you know, studio mandated or not. Were you guys impressed with seeing uh, the Mad Titan for the first time? Well, second, I guess, but okay. <laughs> It was good to see him, you know, to see the, the you know, at, at this point when you saw it in the cinema, the story was just unfolding. So it's mm. good to see where it was going. He was, he was to me, he was arguably more menacing at this point than he was later on his, his appearances. But yeah, mm. he made a decent impression. And again, studio mandated, as you say. But yeah, I mean, the limited screen time that he had, he, uh, he made good use of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I compare it to, like, the Emperor in Empire Strikes Back. Like, you know there's a really terrible, bigger threat out there than the thing you're following, and it's nice setup. Um, but then, you know, you see him and he's a wrinkled old raisin. Yeah. <laughs> I, do, I honestly think if if his, you know, appearance hadn't been mandated, I think Ronan would have come off a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, probably, probably. Um, also, I have to say about that scene as well. This is my ultimate nitpick, but I always hate it in science fiction where they do that thing where an entire planet is just somewhere you can rest and you're in space on the surface. And I'm like, planets are bigger than this, guys. And if you're virtually in space when you're sat on a planet, you're dead. You're on a meteor or something. That's not how planets work. <laughs> is that just me? <laughs> I think it's time to break out the Joel gif. <laughs> I'll throw that in when I edit then, fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, um, one final quick acting uh, note because I'm an absolute nerd. Um, it's uh, This is the final appearance of the character The Other who first appeared in Avengers, uh, Joss Whedon's film. And if you didn't know it, that character is played by Alexis Denisov, who Whedon fans will know as Wesley Wyndham Price from Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. Uh, yeah, I love how he just gets unceremoniously killed by Ronan and nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. Uh, did you know that was Alexis Danisoff, or are you not actually a sort of Buffy and Angel fan? I I, I knew it was uh, Denisoff, and I, weirdly enough, I wasn't much of a Buffy fan, but I was addicted to Angel. 
Good man, good man. Better show. <laughs> uh, right. So, DK, that's uh, DK. Well, first of all, DK and Toby, any other notes on acting that I haven't hit yet? Um, I want to talk about Thanos, but I think it's more of a writing issue that I have with him. Okay. So I don't think okay. it's, it's the right point. His performance is good. Let's just say that that and my problems. Yes. That's fine. Well, do you want us to move on? Why to he is next? in this story at all and why can't he just not be in it? And I will bathe the stairways in your blood. That's fair enough. We'll go for it. Like I said, we may as well jump into writing next if you have no other acting notes. That makes sense. Uh, you've kind of led us there organically. So, yeah, in terms yeah. of the writing of Thanos, what did you want to say? He doesn't need to be in the story at all. Kick him off. Out. Yeah. I think as... every, everything that is needed from the story about even about this overall saga is conveyed with the mentions of Thanos without his appearance. We don't need this little appearance that just says, hey, this guy exists. Look, 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 look. Mm. Because apparently people are too dumb to notice when he's named multiple times. <laughs> That's the thing, though. That's what I was going to say. Is a main character in this movie. Yeah. Like that's the thing. I think you would be you would be waiting for him because there are so many characters who are linked to him that yeah. I think if he didn't appear, it would be kind of weird. But if sure in, in an expectation way, maybe, but I think just the story even about Ronan would have been worked would have been would have worked better mm. if Thanos just didn't appear as like this entity that just is on the screen as well and you because i feel like the moment Thanos actually appears you kind of at least i expect then that he takes more of a role and not just dips in for five seconds and then vanish see i i really liked the bit at the end because i i always like them sort of selling how serious the threat is and i don't think lee pace bless his heart is selling that moment very well but then i think it's great at the very end of the movie when I think it's Korath says to him, you can't take the stone. Are you an idiot betraying Thanos? He's the most powerful being in the galaxy. And Ronan just goes, not anymore. Even at the very end of the movie, that joke where they like, Drax, you finally got your revenge on Ronan. And he's like, yes, but of course, Ronan's just a puppet. It's Thanos that I really have to go for. I don't know if that joke would work if you hadn't seen him, you know? Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate a bit there, I suppose. But, uh, yeah. What about you, Dickie? Any thoughts on that? Uh Again, if if Thanos had not been in it, I can I can see both sides. If Thanos hadn't been in it, Ronan would have been more of a threat. But mm. yeah, it was you know as we said, it was mandated. It didn't need to be there, but obviously they had the the game plan for the phases and stuff like that. So he was chucked in, and it doesn't make that big an impression. You know, in the grand scheme of things, he could have the movie would have worked fine without him. But again. Because it's Brolin, what limited time he, he he had, he did he did make that impression. Again, it you know it, it is going back to the writing, but they I, they had to well, do it basically. That's the thing related to that. I do wonder. I don't know if anybody knows this, but I do wonder how much was dictated to Gunn and Nicole Perlman, the screenwriters, that they had to put in. Because, like for example, the Infinity Stone in this movie is the central MacGuffin. So was that? them or was this like you need to get an infinity stone in there um because it seems very central to the plot if they were just 
given it. And I don't know how well it would have worked if it wasn't an Infinity Stone. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, they could have they could have mandated that. Yeah, you've got to put an Infinity Stone in. That's got to yeah. be the premise. And Gunn could have written around that. But you could have, you know, arguably done that without having Thanos there. Hmm. Well, yeah, no, I'm not, I wasn't saying with that. I just mean like how much of it was because I think we all assume a lot of the time. Oh, the studio made you do this and did that and stuff. And I wonder how much of it is that and how much of it is. Like I said, they can't surely have said put an Infinity Stone in the movie that you've already written because if you don't have that central element, then you've got no script. So surely they yeah. were doing that already, you know? I think, um, I think it's maybe of a case of that they already had a plan of like, oh, we want to have like a powerful thing, object, whatever. And yeah. then obviously, I think probably Gunn even himself looked and saw, oh, they're doing Infinity Stones. Why not take this? It it fits. It it would make Marvel happy. It would serve my point well. It would, yeah. it would all work together. I do but think I the would producers say... would have had a checklist. I don't think it's a question of you know Stephen Moffat writing, as in you know here's a title, go and write something that involves that shit. No, you but know? I do wonder how much of it is because as we as I said, we know that Gunn is a, a huge geek for these things anyway. That's why he kind of took on the role and and did what he did. And there's so many things in here that will be important or expanded on. And I'd love to just to know and be a fly on the wall how much of it was stuff Gunn put in that then became important and how much of it was we have plans for this. Like, uh, I've got a list here of things that includes, like, the Infinity Stone, obviously Thanos, the Kree, who would become hugely important, not just in the MCU, but, like, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. ran with the Kree for a long time. And obviously the Celestials, you would have had to mention them because that's what the, um, Nowhere is, the severed head of the Celestial. Yeah. And then it sells the Infinity Stone that, as you mentioned, you see Ison the Searcher use it. But it's like, did they know at this point that they were going to make an Eternals movie? Because it was so much later. I don't think so. I don't think so. No, I agree with Toby there. I don't think they thought that far ahead. I think yeah. it would have been, you know, Pipe Dream, it would have been nice had we got a movie with Celestials in later on. Unfortunately, yeah. the one we got wasn't very good. But, yeah, I think at this point it was just, uh, let's just chuck everything in. It'll just be an Easter egg fest. Yeah. yeah. And, and like I said, I'd love to know how much, how many of those Easter eggs were like James Gunn being like, oh, I love this character, or I love this moment, or and how much was just like Kevin Faggy going, you know what, we might use the Celestials later, so chuck one of those in there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm waffling I don't, a bit. I don't think so. Especially yeah, not with, with, with all the mentions and Easter eggs and cameras. I, I don't think there was any notes to that. I think... I think because if that was a mission that, that that Marvel has to just chuck an Easter egg everywhere, I think every movie would have gotten this weight of Easter eggs, but it doesn't. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so I feel like this is definitely something that's specific to Gun. Hmm. And I think to, to the main plot... I think a lot of things are just intertwined nat naturally through the mm. saga with, with Gamora mm. as being part of the crew. And I, I think it That's just kind enough, of yeah. worked itself out to just fit in. I think a lot of part is probably made by Gunn himself to kind of fit it in. I don't think it was a lot of, oh, you have to do this or that. Yeah. That's the fair. only thing I could see of being mandated was that Thanos has to appear in some way. Yeah. Because I, I, yeah, I, don't know I feel either. like he was kind of squished in for me, but he felt a little. 
Yeah, I mean, you get the sense of that because they'd cast Josh Brolin at this point and you got the sense that they kind of wanted to say, we want to let the audience know this is our Thanos yeah. going forward because they'd only seen the other actor. And so it was a good way to be like, this is Thanos. Next time you see him, it'll be, other than post-credits, bits and pieces, it'll be, um, you know, when his plan comes to fruition and yeah. we need to set him up, I suppose, in that way. But I will say this film does a lot much better of a job, whether it be intentional or not, of setting up things for the future than, for example, Iron Man 2, the way that a lot of people complain about that being bogged down with, we've got to set up Avengers. Um, and I think that's that. it's a lot more shoehorned in there than it seems like here. Everything does seem natural and organic. But um, yeah. sorry, DK, you were interrupted there. What were you saying? <laughs> Um, I can't remember what I was saying, to be honest. Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> um, right. So, well, DK, did you have any thoughts on writing you wanted to? Uh... Uh, I just think they would. I, I love it because, yes, they'd all been, uh, you know, very, very good comic book adaptations uh, until this point. But I remember the general sense of unease when mm. the trailer for Guardians was first released because this mm. was like, this is so outlandish, but they went fully into that and it just, it worked. And I, I love it. It's just completely, it's, it's batshit crazy. Let's be honest. When you compare this to the first Iron Man and even Iron Man and it's most, you know, ridiculous, the Dan, the stripper pole in the plane and stuff like that, it, it comes nowhere near Guardian. So it was a gamble, but they didn't do what they did with the old, uh, X-Men movies and thought, you know, let's put everyone in black leather and try and make it more grounded. Gunn just went completely into this, and it's it's just... I, I love it for it. I think it, by far and away, it's the writing is such that it's a standout movie that you can watch with, you know, the the Thanos not thing notwithstanding. It's a stand, it works as a standalone movie as well as part of the, the, the larger story. And I think the writing on this, just the dialogue, you go from the plotting, you know, obviously there's a MacGuffin, it's it, it's not going to be Shakespeare, you, you know, you have to get from A to B, this contrivance is fine, fine. But the way they handled it, I just thought was done really well. And I think the dialogue, and yes, there was a lot ad-libbed, but I think mm. the dialogue just sparkles, even in the... You know, the quiet scenes like with uh, Quill and Gamora and, you know, the Walkman and later on where they're all sat around just chatting about what they're going to do with the plan. I just think, I think the writing on this is just, is just first class. And I'm, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm not Gunn's biggest fan. I'll, I'll say that. But I think when he hits the mark, he reads it. And on this and on volume two, he really hit it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um what was I going to say? Let's see. So, Toby, any thoughts on writing you wanted to bring up before I uh, lead us a bit further here? No. Well, yes, one thing. Um, as we already talked about, the plot is, the general story is not the most elaborate, but I feel mm. like it really focuses on characters, and I think that makes it work. And I think that's one of Gunn's strengths, I think, in writing, mm. focusing on characters and not really creating elaborate mysteries or something or like a, a grand story or something he's more of a character writer i feel from the stuff we have seen i mean from this movie and later stuff that we have seen from him yeah mm -hmm. yeah i do kind of 
it's it's weird because I you know fine well DK that I'm very skeptical skeptical about what a good Superman movie is going to look like now that we know it's coming, uh, and I'm so protective of that character that I'm very nervous of it, but. I certainly can see a lot more now that I've watched this movie. Like he does get character and he is capable of doing characters who aren't just outrageous or stereotypes or, you know, <laughs> aggressively yeah. stupid or whatever. And I'm like, so, you know, I, I don't, not necessarily everybody's going to, and even when the character is like that, I mean, I could not believe how he completely changed my opinion of 360 of Peacemaker when I watched the yeah. TV series compared to how I thought of him in the movie. And I was like, well, that's so weird because it's the same character. So why did you do him so dirty in the film and then give him really big depth when it came to the series, you know? Um, but that's never here nor there, I, I suppose. I will say that I would rather see uh, the Guardians version of Gunn do the Superman. Than oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And definitely, and, uh, you know, more than Slither. Oh, yeah. Or Super at the absolute worst case scenario because that is terrible. I despise that movie. <laughs> I like it to a point where he just goes completely edgelord and then you just think, okay, that's changed the tone a little. Yeah, I don't like it. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah. Um, related to what you were saying, though, I did want to say it's kind of nice that this is a... It's a startling intro to the cosmic side of Marvel, but I do kind of resent this retroactive history that forgets that Thor had to lay a lot of that groundwork first because... If Thor hadn't worked, things like that would have been completely off the table. Uh, because, like you said, before that, you've got Iron Man and Hulk, which are very much... I mean, Hulk, perhaps a little bit outrageous, but he'd had a TV series and everything at this point, so people knew the character. And Iron Man was very much set in a grounded world. You you were going to have Captain America, but that's also very, like, even the broad concepts, like, you know, cryogenically frozen for years and whatever. It's still a relatively grounded movie. But I really like that first Thor movie because I don't think it gets credit for... Like I said, if that hadn't worked, if people just weren't willing to accept that, the MCU would be a very different beast than it is right now. Yeah, I like I like the first one. In fact, I'm one of the few people that seem to like the second one. Yeah, I, I, I do like the second one. I don't love it, but I certainly like it, and I don't think it deserves the rep it gets, but that's a different conversation for a different time. We're talking about Guardians. But yes, in terms of the outlandish concepts, we've all seen the memes where it's just like DC... People will yeah. never accept a Wonder Woman movie Wonder just Woman yet. Movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Marvel. Yeah, exactly. And it is kind of like, yeah, there is a, a degree of that that's kind of like, huh. <laughs> and you did make it work. It's it's weird. Yeah, but, um, I do appreciate that they, uh, Bill Mantlo, creator of Raccoon, uh, was hmm. really ill at this point, and uh, they invited him to a, a special screening, and uh, he loved it apparently. And I, I always like it when it, it's always good when you see, you know, the people involved in creating these characters get some recognition. Yeah. And it always kind of, you know, sticks in your craw a bit when people aren't given, like, uh, I forget the chap's name, bless him, but the guy who created Thanos and wrote Infinity War. Just getting next to Stalin, that's right. Getting next to nothing for the yeah. Avengers Infinity War movie. And it's like, this is this dude's literal concept you're taking here, <laughs> but whatever. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, in terms of writing, I have a load of notes, so forgive me. I just kind of want to rattle through so I don't feel like I haven't said it because I just tend to overnote and overanalyze. Um, so first of all, I do like that the movie opens by basically telling you that it's going to be all about Star-Lord's mother and the love for her in much the same way that the second one tells you it's going to all be about his father. Uh, it's a really nice dichotomy there, and it does make me wonder what sort of the central thing in Volume 3 is going to be. 
if you haven't seen the holiday special, spoiler alert, but it might be his relationship with his sister, I guess. <laughs> I can't see him going back to that now. I think they've kind of touched upon it and moved on. I can't see him going, you know, reverting to that. Yeah, yeah it kind of has to... I think these movies benefit, though, from having that central... Not framework, because it doesn't... Not every sort of moment of the movie is about that, but having that be the lodestone that you build on, I think really benefits these first two Guardians movies. And, uh, yeah, I like that. Um is it a bit convenient that he gets abducted right as his mother dies? At first, I thought so. Then I realized that if you watch the other movies and stuff, it's deliberate because it's like his father sending for him because he knows, you know, he's going to be on his own at that point. His mother's gone. So that makes sense retroactively. <laughs> uh, I love that. And again, this is something I hadn't, I obviously had noticed this, but it didn't really register with me that it's super important that young Peter can't touch his mother's hand as she dies. And then the ultimate resolution of everything is, you have to link hands and he yeah. can sort of touch hands with the vision of his mother. And I was like, huh, that really is super important in the grand scheme of things. So I did like that. Uh, you've already mentioned the kind of Star Lord Who moment. Has to be said, this is a very memeable movie. There's so many lines of dialogue and bits and pieces. Uh, do either of you have a favorite meme just quickly from this that you, uh, or is it just simply Who? <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm going to go with, I'm going to need that guys, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> uh, I love this this particular part of the writing, which is how okay, Drax isn't in the movie yet, but the Guardians basically come together by the fact that there are three factions at cross purposes all chasing each other on that opening scene on Xandar. So you've got Rocket and Groot trying to catch Star Lord and then you know get, getting sight of Gamora and seeing if they can do that, and then Gamora chasing down Quill to get the orb. And yeah, this fantastic, like, this is such good writing in terms of... Just have a touch of the fastball about it, and it's it's really well done. But without being ridiculous, though, it takes the kind of yeah, trope yeah. of class and stuff, but it never feels unnatural or anything. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, and related to that, the fact that the movie gives you the exposition about the characters in a very organic way, just through their arrest records and stuff. And it's just kind of like, this is quite ingenious because... The other option would be to stop the movie like original Suicide Squad style and have a little breakdown on screen. And I was like, that does not work, as we learned from the first Suicide Squad movie. Yeah. So, so having like Peter Serafinovich basically read you the Marvel handbook cliff notes is surprisingly effective, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do love, like you said, a lot of the jokes, the rocket prosthetic joke. The, the moment is so good when you think that they're having a romantic you know, liaison and it just completely subverts it, which it does a lot of subversion in this movie, but with Gamora just saying, I know who you are, Peter Quill, and I am not some starry-eyed wait here to succumb to your, your pelvic sorcery. Um, awesome. I love, love, love Rocket's kind of drunk, sad rant when he just finally breaks down about, you know, nobody, I, I never asked to be this. Nobody asks me how I feel. Everyone's making fun of me. They're calling me things. And for me, that's one of the central scenes character-wise in the film, because my heart broke for that little Vicarin rodent in that scene. <laughs> the, the tone switches on a dime, and it's done so well that it doesn't break the immersion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and again, it, it, the movie as a whole, on a macrocosm, echoes what I said about the Xandar scene, because then you get the Ravagers, Ronan, Nova, Nebula, all these multiple forces kind of chasing the protagonists around. 
And yet it never feels like it's overwhelmed with all this. It kind of fits the narrative greatly. And it does the same thing as I'm now kind of talking about it. I realize it does the same thing in the sequel because you've got like the sovereign, you've got ego, all these forces again, just chasing the guardians down across the galaxy. And again, it works really well. So yeah. Awesome. Um, the moment of like, it's such a kind of cliche, I suppose, the moment where the heroes have to reach their low point. And in this film, it's like when Drax has been defeated by Ronan and he's sort of drowning and Gamora's dying in space. But that scene is so flipping good, the way it's, you know, Star-Lord saves her life and everything. Though there is a moment that really annoys me because it undercuts what I think should have been kept as a serious moment when he's rescued uh, Gamora and they're in the Ravager ship and it plays it for the laugh of like there was just a moment there where I felt so dang heroic and she kind of rolls her eyes and I was like oh I wish we didn't have that beat because I'd really rather have sat with the seriousness of that for a second longer you know um, mm. but yeah anyway uh, you've already mentioned but the circle scene is just again writing perfection I could write the whole thing out but the, you know every bit of dialogue in this Every line is so fantastic. It's fun. It, it, it sums up each character brilliantly, but the real crux of it is definitely. I have lived most of my life surrounded by my enemies. I will be grateful to die among my friends. Um, related to that, I like how everyone has their own role and their relevant personal challenge in the end battle. You know, um, it's. Gamora who takes on Nebula it's Peter who has to you know fly the ship and, and eventually faces off with Ronan Rocker is trying to help out Denari and Saul and they all have their part to play it's, it's great um yeah I can't really think of what obviously the moment the moment that, that breaks everyone's hearts and mine too is the whole we are Groot as he kind of cocoons them and uh Rocket's kind of exasperated sadness at Groot dying and uh, yeah makes me well up every single time i do and, like uh, yeah, the, the little reference as well to space invaders when they're all coming down attacking xandar oh i didn't even notice that i was too busy thinking that the um the xandarian fleet when they all combined might have been a reference to the tholian web from star trek because it looks very like it. <laughs> i do think it had touches of that but yeah apparently it was a conscious reference for to uh, towards space invaders as well yeah that's so weird i keep forgetting to look for things like this but yeah uh, yeah, so related to that, I do like all the things that are set up for the future. So the hint about his dad, the, the Ravagers were hired, and him being told by Nova Prime, you're half Terran. Uh, and I do love the troll switch out. And again, as I said, I'm not sold on Yondu, but moments like this really got me there when it's like he sees that he's been tricked with the troll doll, and he just smiles. And he just he doesn't care at all, you know? He's just like, yeah, my guy, I guess. <laughs> so it works. And uh, yeah, the rest I've kind of talked about, the little dance and the stroking of uh, Rocket when he's sad. And I love that baby Groot, you know? <laughs> I wish Gunn had made it clearer within the narrative that it's not the same guy. It's kind of like more like an offspring because he did have to come out and say that in a lot of interviews and stuff later. Yeah. And that's not remotely made clear, uh, I think, in the movie, which I think it should have been. But yeah. yeah. So DK, do you want to talk about the directing next? Do you want to start us off on anything that you uh, you have to say about that? I just thought it was a very, uh, very competent. I've not really got any any points, not any particular scenes that stand out to me. I just think it was really well done. I mean, I, I wasn't, I'm not, I wasn't a big fan of Gunn. I'd not seen any of his trauma stuff. Like I said, the, I think the only thing I'd seen prior to this was Slither. I don't think I'd seen Super until after this. But from what I'd seen of Slither, didn't really impress me much. Yeah, and so I, I wasn't. 
I, I did have low expectations going in, but yeah, did a competent. He, he didn't just do a competent job; he did a bang up job. I, I, yeah, I just fantastic. Felt it. You can kind of tell he's got a passion and a love for these characters in this cosmic Marvel world. For sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What about you then, Toby? Any thoughts on direction before I jump in with notes again? <laughs> no, not directly. No, no. That's fair enough. Yeah, uh, that's okay. I'll, I'll just say um, there's little moments that I wanted to touch on. That, like I said, my film student brain was clicking in, and I wanted to shout out the opening on Morag. I think is so good in that it sets your tone of what to expect the movie to be, and it is the entire film's tone right there for you you know the fact that it starts off serious and you get him doing the indiana jones bit looking for the thing and then it just kicks into uh what is it come and get your love and he's dancing around and kicking at the little rodents and even the little the title reveal i think is like you know you know what film this is gonna be um special shout out for the costuming i love that every character kind of looks like they haven't they look natural, and yet they all have a, an appearance that is so iconic that it can be easily cosplayed, uh, starting with Star-Lord's kind of uh, red leathery jacket to, like, Gamora's outfits and, uh, you know, everything, basically. The Nova, everyone in the movie is just looking incredible, and it is really well done. And uh, it's not a, a sort of department that I often thank, and I think we should for this movie. Um, yeah. I love this. I, I, this is definitely a directorial touch, I suppose. But the fact that he plays it for the joke of Groot stealing the item in the background that they're saying you definitely want to get last. It is so funny. It works so well. And it's just, it's such a visual gag that you have to be so precisely set up. Loved it. Just loved it. Um, the fly through space to the Pina Colada song. Loved that too. Cherry bomb under your little actory exposition and the suiting up scene. And yes, it's cliche, but the kind of group all coming together and walking towards you shot is just brilliant. Uh, I love the sheer variety of shots that you get in the Xandar space battle. Uh, because as I was viewing it with, like I said, this more critical lens, I was like, huh. It's guns never static, and he's a really good director when you notice these things. They're shots from like inside the various spaceships through the windows, the outside, inside the cargo bay of the Dark Aster, in the various Nova ships. And there's one particular shot where he has the Milano in the shot, but it's like bottom right, it's nowhere foregrounded, yet it is completely still your focus. And I think yeah. that is just brilliant direction you know i think he does such a good job and this isn't easy this kind of sci-fi space battle stuff but as you said the fact that he even gets the space invaders sense in there even if i didn't pick up on it is kind of uh it's pretty awesome he, he did he, he did blow me away with this because like i said I, you know my limited experience of him i wasn't entirely sold but he blew me away with this i just think he would i think it's one of the things that disappointed me about his suicide squad i was expecting guardians level and to me it just wasn't yeah, I think it 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 wasn't quite up there with me either. Just bits and pieces, but yeah. yeah that could, I mean, that could be down to the writing. So maybe, maybe, yeah. But yeah, a, a little thing. But I do love the way that all the Nova ships. First of all, the fact that they all look like stars, and secondly, that they can all combine into one big giant Megazord transformer. Yeah, sort of I knew Megazord was going to come into this at some point. <laughs> well, I had to. Yeah, it's contractual obligation. at home. Mike is a Power Rangers. Check me out on the Pasty Sheep Nerd Bible podcast in their newest episode to find out more about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I, again, we've mentioned it, but the, the, the just the, the beautiful group lighting up the way with the, the sort of whatever it is, the little lights thing is so well done. Um, this again, I've mentioned this, but the film a lot of the humor I think comes from subverting expectations. So the fact that we're stealing ourselves for Nebula to attack. 
and Drax just literally blows us straight away and says, ah, nobody insults my friends like that. It's just like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> um, again, directing note, the camera, the fact that it travels with Yondu's arrow as it travels in a circle through people, like, that is such a simple thing that you might not even pick up on, but it adds so much dynamism to that scene, and it's not something every director would do. Like, a lot of them would keep it, the camera there and then, you know, track it from the outside, but this camera, it's like the camera is on the arrow, and it's just like, oh. Mwah, love it. Uh, any notes from? I, I'll, I'll let you decide who goes first. But any notes on the visual effects from either of you? I, I think, I I forgot how good this movie looks. I totally forgot, mm-hmm. and I feel like it's it's kind of, like I don't like to be the person saying, "Oh, Marvel movies look like shit right now." It's hard but, not to when you see this, though, when this, you see what they this could movie do. Kind, kind of forces you to, to at least say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there are, there are definitely I, some that you been... feel like didn't get the focus that, like, this got back in 2014 because there's things in here yeah. that you're like, wow, this would not look as good now, would well, it? I believe, and I really hope Volume 3 doesn't. Company, I can't remember the name, so forgive me if anybody out there knows or if you can look it up, Matt, but I believe the effects company for this were only ever used in the MCU on this film. No way. It's so weird. I mean, I love Volume 2 as well, don't get me wrong, but yeah, I'm with you, Toby. But yeah, carry on, you were saying. But I think it's not only, like, the quality of the effects. I think also a lot of the composition of the, like, shots, like, how how Xander looks. I really like how it looks futuristic. But I feel like a lot of futuristic stuff kind of especially if it's like in futuristic white which is like okay um can can get quickly very depressing or sterile and it doesn't fall into that trap even though it's a lot of white white in that and i really like that just just in general the, the prison looks amazing um i feel like they all look real and it's yeah. not only like that the that the effects make that but also like the way Stuff is just built in the sets and all. They they all really make it look real, and that yeah. is something that I can't say about other later Marvel movies. Yeah. yeah, they look. It's, a, often it's a, lot. a lot harder in this one to tell what CGI and what isn't. Yeah, whereas it becomes painfully obvious in some of the later movies, as you said. Um, awesome. I'm getting um, by the way, DK, that it was someone called MPC or Moving Picture Company. That's it, the, yeah. Uh, VFX, yeah, for Guardians of the Galaxy. But yeah, um, any other thoughts, Toby, on that? Um, no, I lost my. No? I lost my. That's sorry, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to jump in with the company. Uh, DK, any thoughts then on visual effects? I think it's a, it's a gorgeous film to look at, even when it's a, its most you know dive sleazy areas. It's just a. It's just such a cliche, but I just. It's one of these movies that I could describe as a feast for the eyes. I think it's yeah. beautiful. It's kind of weird because I was watching this at the same time, as I've mentioned uh, off air to you guys, as uh, Adrian on our Discord, who's been on our uh, episodes a few times. And I'd already made the note that, like, Morag, first of all, and then all of the planetscapes look beautiful and are really well done. Like, when you see them from orbit or the vistas of the, you know, appearance from afar, they look like they could be classic science fiction paintings. Uh, there's a particular name like Frank Franzetta or, or the like. It looks like they could be from those yeah. classic days. And then I think Adrian, not to spoil audience feedback, but she did say 
all of these places are places I would love to visit. They all look amazing, except maybe the kiln, <laughs> you know. But uh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, the, the, every planet and everything just looks stunning. And as I basically already said to Toby, you can't tell if it's a set that they built or if it's yeah. VFX because it's that good. You can't see the join. Um, I wanted to shout out a few little things that I like because I'm a nerd and I wanted to do it. I love the Star-Lord helmet effect, <laughs> the way it just kind of, you know, dissolves into a, almost like a retracting kind of thing. I love the Milano. I love Rocket's extendable gun. As I said, I love the Nova starships. And I love Peter's blasters because they're just such a cool design, like the way it has two prongs, I suppose, on the, the top and bottom. Love it. Um, oh, mate, 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 mate. Just wait till the black hole review. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and uh, yeah, related again to what you were saying, Toby, I think Rocket and Groot, Groot look much better than they have any right to. You never doubt their realness. You, you don't doubt that there's really a raccoon and a tree there. And you do yeah. think, hmm, if that was a modern Marvel movie, would they not look as real? Would they look a bit more fake? Because it is flawless. And these are not easy things to do. I mean, particularly Rocket, when you're, you're talking about fur that you're having to do as a CG element, that is blooming difficult to do you know and yet i mean just look at dk's avatar that doesn't look fake at all it should it's ludicrous and yet you believe it it's just great and uh yeah my last note about vfx the fight over xandar at the end is just breathtaking uh it was my you know the, the highlight of the movie for me when i first came out of it and it is pretty much every time since because it's a triumph of special effects sound acting directing and it's just amazing it's one of my favorite little pieces of science fiction. Uh, even in bad movies, there are moments like that. Like I put it up there with, for example, the the Sentinels swarming Zion in the third Matrix film, like that half hour extended sequence. Not a great movie, but I love that sequence. And I would say, yeah, this Xandar fight is, if I ever made a compilation of like favorite science fiction moments or scenes or battles, this would definitely be something I would include in it. Uh, yeah. Uh, so any other thoughts on VFX from either of you guys? No, I think I pretty much said everything. I already said everything I wanted to say. That's fair enough. Uh, well, we should talk about the music and sound. Ordinarily, we wouldn't have a lot to say, but this particular movie being what it is, obviously, the soundtrack is central. Uh, I will say I think I prefer Awesome Mix Volume 2, but this still rocks and I think redefined movie soundtracks outside of maybe Tarantino. It's a virtual jukebox musical because I find myself singing along with every song that kicks in. Um, and I wondered if you guys had similar thoughts and maybe if you could tell me what, if you have a favourite track from the awesome mix that's used in the movie or a moment where it kicks in. <sighs> it's hard to choose, isn't it? <laughs> it is hard to choose. I'm going to have to go with the Pina Colada song, uh, <laughs> even though the lyrics are absolutely freaking abysmal. I never really listened to, to the it's lyrics. It's terrible. Before. The story's oh. terrible. It's just like, ah, oh, we both wanted to cheat, so let's stay together. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that aside, it's got a nice... Oh, I've got to sound like a pension. It's got a nice melody. It's the way it plays with the tone of that moment when it's so quiet and then he just comes zooming at the camera through space to, do you like Pete? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I mean, wow, okay. <laughs> I, I love it because, to me, it harkens back to those days of big blockbusters with just really kick-ass soundtracks where and you know we'll get to that at a later review because i know it will be coming there those 80s movies that have these amazing soundtracks mm. you'll get on cassette and just <laughs> i know what you're thinking of <laughs> <laughs> play until it wore out and it's it's i mean 
Tyler Perry, t- sorry, Tyler Perry, Jesus. Tyler Bates's uh, soundtrack mm-hmm. is phenomenal. It's a really good. But when you add that to, you know, contemporary, as it were, soundtrack, to, I just think it's just fantastic. I, I will disagree with you in that I do prefer this one to volume two. There's just okay. one or two songs on volume two that I do prefer. But other than that, I think this fucks man. Fair enough. I'll save my thoughts because I think uh, I don't just mean the songs. I mean the way that the songs are used and undercut in Volume Two. But I'll save that for a future, hopefully, Volume Two review. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. Awesome. What about you, Toby? Any sort of highlights musically in terms of songs or anything? First of all, I think in general, I really like how the music is utilized in this mm. movie and and how it actually has a point that there is like popular music in this movie and not just. I mean, it's it's fun to have it just in general. It's always fun, but I really like, especially that it has actually a point in the narrative in this movie that the songs yeah. are there, and that's just a little touch that I think is really really great. Favorite song from the soundtrack, um, probably "Cherry Bomb." Yeah, yeah I, Cherry I Bomb. think that's probably my favorite moment because, like I said, the way it plays through the exposition to the final group hero shot is. Uh, so good yeah and because it's such a recognizable song it's like oh that's how you use that also yeah yep. i like that too uh, fair enough um i will say yeah as you kind of already said dk it gets overshadowed by the actual sort of you know pop music soundtrack but the score by tyler bates is incredible it's at least equally as good uh if you're out there and you wanted to hear my highlights they are vast because i noticed it on escaping morag the Kiln escape the fanfare kicking in as the Guardians are seen together in the lift, the pod attack on Nowhere, Gamora dying, Drax joining Rocket and Groot, the sad version of the fanfare as they're sat in the circle, the way it really kicks in during the Xandar space battle, the taking hands scene, the reveal of the new ship, and the letter from his mum, all of which had really strong musical uh, sort of score moments. And I love that listening to it now, because it's one of the few scores that I just own and listen to, on every single track, Tyler Bates works in the same light motif, which is the sort of the way that uh, I call it the Guardians fanfare. The way it just goes like do 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 do, and it would later be used on the song Guardians Inferno, the original song that they made on the uh, Awesome Mix Volume Two. But it's so recognizable, notable, and iconic that I was just like, I wish I had this level of genius to create something this amazing. But, uh, yeah, fair enough. Um, where were we? Anything else from you guys then? Just any random other moments or no? No, just really well done movie all around. Um, what we'll do then, we'll jump into the section that we always do, which is our favourite character, moment and line. Uh, then I'll throw it to DK for some audience feedback and then we'll come back and give our conclusions and scores. So, Toby, you are the guest. We'll come to you oh, first. No. <laughs> Who is your favourite character in the movie? <laughs> yeah, who's my favourite character in the movie? I, I, I'm going to, going to go stick with what I said in the very beginning. I was really impressed with Gamora in this movie. In okay. a, on a level that I just did not remember that it was so good. Mm, I love that. I love that everyone's going to probably have a different answer. We'll see. Um, but yeah, I love that. And I love that, yeah, the way you explained it is just really good. It made me appreciate the character as well. Awesome. Um, what about you, DK? Who's your favorite character? Yeah. Uh, uh... Every single character in this movie shines and all of them are memorable in their own way. But, you know, from my avatar, it was always, always going to be Rocket. 
If I were in the MCU, I would be Rocky. Dude is my spirit animal. I was he's fully the... expecting you to go with Star No, no, it's 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 always going to be Rocky. I mean, he's the reason Gunn made this movie, and he's the reason I love this movie. So yeah, Rocky every time. As much as as much as I love Quill, sorry, dude, it's Rocky. That's fair enough. Do you uh, do you guys need me to give my favorite character? Go for it. Yeah, I'll just say all of them. Uh, so we'll move on to the oh. next. Oh, all right. What if, a you're gonna, if you're going to force me to choose, I'll go with Rocket Raccoon. I did yeah. have that down uh, as already. I did say if, if I have to look at it, it's definitely Rocket for me too. Uh, because, yeah, Rocket really is the heart of the film and is the character that you take to heart. And Gunn is very much aware of this as well, which is why he's, you know, at time of recording, got a sword of Damocles hanging over his head, you know, with volume three, because... You can't threaten a character we don't give a crap about, and we all really hope that Rocket comes out of Volume Three, okay? So just go and don't break our hearts, man. <laughs> at the time, uh, at the time of playing this, some people have seen it, man. I know, right? I know. Oh, there are probably anyway. people weeping into the freaking cornflakes. <laughs> well, I've, I've just downloaded the soundtrack and I was listening through it um, today, actually, a little bit earlier, and there is a track on there, I think, by the Flaming Lips, which is all about like. You know, oh, you everyone has to die. There comes a time and moment, and I was like, I know this is going to be played when a character that I love has been taken from me, and I'm not ready. <laughs> How is it to listen to? Because on paper, it doesn't look as impressive to me as volume one and two. It's a very weird experience when compared to one and two because it's a lot more contemporary. Um, and yeah, it kind of jars a lot more the way that it has that difference, but it also includes my favorite song possibly of all time since you've been gone by rainbow which i can't believe it's taken until volume 3 to get into one of these movies so i have to automatically love it <laughs> so, yeah. fair enough um awesome so yeah uh, anyway toby that was her slight uh, detour but who what is your favorite moment in the film what is my favorite moment i did not prepare this question um <laughs> <laughs> Can I get a minute to think about it? And absolutely, absolutely. We'll uh, we'll give you a minute. Absolutely, DK. What about you? What was your favorite moment in the film? Uh, mine is the bunch of jackasses standing in a circle scene. Gets to the essence of these characters. It gives them all great dialogue, and it's got you both on the edge of your seat and laughing in equal measure. Love it. Yeah. If twelve percent of a plan, that's not a plan. <laughs> yeah. I am Groot. What do you mean it's better than 11%? <laughs> just, oh, so many moments are so good. I told you I was thinking about something else. Yeah, I just said blowing me up would not be saving me. Oh, I wasn't listening. I was thinking of something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, there are so many contenders because I could easily have picked that and I would have absolutely meant it. But again, I tried to do this because, listener, we do this all the time now. Sorry, Toby, I, I don't think you've been on while we've done this, so it might have caught you off guard, but... Yeah. I had to try and narrow it down as best that I could. And I'm probably going to get a lot of stick here, but I'm going to slightly cheat and say that my favorite moment is the third act. Oh, for fuck's it... sake, man. You started <laughs> off with every character, and now it's... Oh, that was a joke. I had, I had that written as a joke to emphasize that I love everyone, but I have to pick the third act. If, I, if you ask me to narrow it down even a bit more specifically, the Xandar space battle, because my you know sci-fi nerd heart just thinks this is incredible and you know especially the memory of watching on the big screen just being like this is my star wars right now you know this is amazing so yeah that's what i would go with toby have you had any thoughts uh or should we move on to our favorite yeah, lines no, and then come back no i i i haven't thought um okay. it is the bar scene um before the collector 
where they're all in the bar and it's like an escalation. Mm. And yeah, I really love how all the characters really clash in that moment, but it's all brought back together really quickly and geniusly done. Yeah. Awesome. Fantastic choices all around. Like I said, you could pick anything and I would say yes to it. So absolutely. And Toby, do you have a favorite line or should we come to you last again? Uh, um, I, I can't quote it right now. Um, it's it's in the same scene. Uh, what what it says. Um, has to get made. I didn't ask to be torn apart and put back together over and over and turned into some... Some little monster! Rock DK, you favorite line? This was incredibly difficult. There's so many good lines in this. I know. I've written it's... a list of them. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm simply going to go with one which is two words, and it's the way he says it as well. It's when Rocky gets the gun and goes, Oh, yeah. You know an ass kicking's coming, and I'm just there for it, brother. Freaking love it. Um, I did write a huge list of lines that could have been contenders for my favourite, but in the end, my favourite line was cemented every time I see this film and it was never in doubt. And it's actually a little exchange that comes toward the end of the movie, and it is... Peter Quill, this is Denarian Saal of the Nova Corps. With a record, I advised against trusting you. They, they got my money! Prove me wrong just love that moment i'm a sucker for moments like that where it's like the character that you think hates you is just like prove me wrong like yeah <laughs> it gets me pumped up no end so that would be my little moment and uh yeah fair enough so dk it's the time has come to throw it open to our audience who i'm sure have all seen and have lots of thoughts on guardians of the galaxy so uh let's hope they were a little bit probably more erudite than my rambly notes and uh, let me ask you to give us our audience feedback please yeah no worries we'll start with uh, with jamie from our discord server uh, <clears throat> he says most people Groot is the best character me i prefer rocket either way guardians is definitely one of the best mcu movies it's fun well directed it's got great characters great music and is an absolute blast i do prefer the sequel personally but the first is still a banger uh Adrienne, again on the Discord, she says, uh, man, I'd forgotten how much I love this movie. Still feeling the love for Rocket, great editing, amazing CGI, love the sound effects, soundtrack is to die for. I as you were saying, I literally want to go to all those places except the kill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, uh, in response to you talking about the score, she says, uh, the score truly is amazing. Uh, she says, I love Rocket's, in quotes, Picard move. I can't remember Picard doing that with, with regards to... No, him. no, the, it's the scene where he pulls down the, his top, like his jumper that he's wearing. He oh, tucks it down the way that Picard does. Him, trying to make room in his banana hammock. Uh, <laughs> she says, her favourite scene is Groot wiping Rocket's tear. In fact, the mm. whole uh, that whole sequence is incredibly touching. Uh, Honourable mentions, the quill saving Gamora just outside nowhere. Uh, the cherry bomb group walk and Nova car ships interlocking sequence. <laughs> All of my favorites as well. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, Nick over on uh, Facebook, he says, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy was a sign of Marvel's growing confidence in the MCU. It neared the end of phase two, consider a risk prior to release, what with expanding out into more fantastical sci-fi realms and talking raccoons, sentient trees and whatnot. I always thought it sounded great. 
especially with James Gunn at the helm and on script duties. It's a great introduction to varied, well-rounded and excellently cast characters and the origin of how they come together. It stands on its own as a complete story, whilst also setting up adventures to, uh, for adventures to come and ties to the wider MCU. All of fun, quotable dialogue and imaginative action. It also has a lot of heart. While not in the very top echelons of my personal MCU list, it's pretty high and it's always a good time. And the soundtrack absolutely slaps too. Now, uh, Bess, uh, Ross Berlingame over on uh, Mastodon says, This was and remains my favourite MCU movie. At a time when the universe was suffering from a lot of sameness, this came along and delivered a smart, stylized shock to the system and set the stage for a lot of the best Marvel content to follow. Now, again, on Mastodon, uh, Fabian... Uh, this is one that I put out and he replied to me. He says, it was an awesome movie. The main driving point, in my opinion, was the music James Gunn chose. The story was great and the team, oh man, irreplaceable. But all of this, all that just fit together because of the good music. Now, uh, Sandy, who's a regular, another regular on the uh, the podcast, she says, I remember when I first heard they were making Guardians of the Galaxy and thinking, no way this can work as a live action. A talking raccoon, a tree, inconceivable. Uh, I watched with others, Pratt beefed up for the role and wondered how this could all possibly come together. And yet from the first dance steps on Morag to the Candy Girl finale, every second was a delight. MCU at its best. It's masters acting, directing, story, cinematography, set design and sound with a killer soundtrack that had us all hooked on a feeling for months. Oh, see what you did there, Sandy? Uh, with sweetly balanced drama, action and humour, I can't ever get enough of this totally rewatchable film. Near perfection in my book. Uh, Angela, uh, again, who's appeared on the podcast before, she's a fun film for someone who knew nothing of the comic books. Great to see Gillen and Saldana getting strong female character roles, whereas Drax and Star-Lord are basically himbos. Rocket is cute and Groot is, well, Groot. Great film for all ages. Now, over on Facebook, uh, Rick says, enjoyable fun and chaos. You could tell there was a lot of ad-libbing in between the plot points, and most of them worked. And Jim Baltimore simply says, I am Groot. And, but, however, I've got to give the last one to Mike's very own brother. Uh, Mike wanted a description of what he thought to it. And his basic description was, nah, not special, just funny, innit? <laughs> Thank you, Sam, for that feedback. <laughs> Sam Milliken there, a man of many words. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, right, so uh, if you guys are ready, we'll jump into our conclusion and our score out of five stars. Uh, Toby, are you prepared or should we go first? No, I I can just do a quick conclusion. Right. Like, there is not a lot to say because just everything is great. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the directing is great. It looks great. The acting is great. The writing is great. Everything is just really, really great. It's well done, and like I, I, I could name specific things that are especially well done. But why we already covered all of this, and yeah. I don't have one thing that I really want to go out and say. Oh, I need to mention that yeah. everything is great, and yeah. there's there's no conclusion. It's just it's great. Fair enough. On. Oh, Some I need to give a score. Um, score of five. <laughs> score out of five is it's a five. Absolutely. Five, okay. five, five. 
Absolutely great. I'd love to hear it. Uh, DK, we'll come to you next. What about your conclusion and your score out of five stars? Yeah. Uh, we're way over a decade into the MCU at this point. Some entries have been good, some not so good, and some have been exceptional. I'd argue this is one of the latter. Guardians of the Galaxy is a big, rash, crazy, colourful, good time. Marvel and James Gunn took a gamble by bringing us a bunch of characters most of the movie-going audience had never heard of and made them as familiar as Marvel's heavy hitters. Writing and direction is on point. Every actor gives a dang good performance. There's no character here that fades into the background. It has stakes without being po-faced, has plenty of laughs without becoming a parody of itself. We've also not had a soundtrack this good since the days of Top Gun and Rocky IV. It's weird to think it's almost 10 years old. It's aged beautifully and is, to me at least, as fresh now as it was when it was released. And if I need a comfort MCU movie, it's this one every single time. Nice. There's nothing else really I can say other than it's just pure, enjoyable fun. And I love, love, love it. And it's it's a five from me. Wow, okay. Uh, awesome. All <laughs> right. I'm going to give you my... Uh conclusion and score out of five then uh, i said uh, often when we review these movies it's the second or third time i've seen it but this one is baked into my dna uh, it's marvel comics science fiction comedy and a story about outsiders this is me in movie form uh, despite me knowing this film inside and out watching this time with a critical eye made me appreciate it even more the way that it's structured the characterization the heart the impressive direction the flair the music the jokes that all hit even after repeated viewings if I have to play party pooper, there's a lack of seriousness in a couple of small moments that irks. I don't love some of the changes from the source material. There's also a bit of a sense at times of the film having to do the slow introductions of an origin story. Similarly, there are other moments where it feels just a little bit bogged down with setup for the cinematic universe, which slows it down a tad and just fits a little bit less snugly. But these are nitpicks in a piece of brilliance. I can't go perfect, but it is an easy 4.5 out of 5 for me. So, <laughs> let me jump in and see if I can work out the average for that then. It comes to 4.83 recurring. So, we'll just call it 4.8 out of 5, which is as close to perfection as you can get. And I'm very happy about that because it is, I would like it's hovering between 4.5 and 5 actually more for me, but I don't like to go with that. So, the final score being 4.8, I'm overjoyed with that. I'm thrilled. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> A strong recommend from us. I think it's safe to say if you've never seen this movie, you should probably do that now. Immediately. <laughs> Run out and find a copy. It's on Disney Plus. Go watch it. So, yeah. Uh, awesome. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, do stay tuned. We will be back soon. But uh, before any of that, just let me say, first of all, thank you so much to both of you for joining me. Thank you, Toby, for coming back on as a guest for a Marvel episode. <laughs> thank you for having me. And... Can I say this? I will be back. Yes, uh, stay tuned. We uh, we may well have to be back for your another Marvel movie in uh, at some point in the year. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, among other I mean, things, of course. <laughs> but, yeah. if, if you're smart, you can guess. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> you know how we do things on the podcast by now, but yeah. <laughs> uh, DK, thank you so much for being a, a brilliant co-host as always. <laughs> always a pleasure, especially on something like this, mate. 
Awesome, awesome, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I've just been me, and uh, you, you know the drill by now. You can find us at all of our social medias uh, that are always on the link in the description. Uh, we have started a page called Buy Me a Coffee. Uh, it's a coffee. Uh, you can find the link to that in our description just to help us with the kind of costs of running this podcast. We don't want to stop now. We're just kind of kicking on the high gear because we just hit. Uh, 200 subscribers very recently and we are very thrilled to be able to say that so uh, yeah every one of you thank you for listening thank you so much for still enjoying this hopefully you still are uh, feedback is always appreciated you can always find the link to my discord if you did want to ask to join toby's uh, quite active in there and uh, if not just stay tuned he'll be back to the uh, silver screen podcast so <laughs> do head on over to our sister channel if you are a trekkie or a general star trek fan where you can catch our review of uh, the entire three seasons of Star Trek Picard. That should be dropping on May 14th. So, yeah, hopefully we'll yeah. catch you here again soon. Uh, DK, do you want to give the sign-off again? Go on, I'll let you. <laughs> oh, well, considering it's it's the next episode. And by the way, if you've got any thoughts on any of the episodes that's coming up, please drop us a line. We're happy to hear from them. Uh, but, yes, back to the dude in black leather. We'll be back. I'll be back. You have been listening to the Silver Screen Podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Behind the scenes sections and additional material produced by DK. Music by Timeless Journey. More information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash timeless journey. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Silver Screen Podcast or look for the Silver Screen Podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen, Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast Production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening.